Hi, thanks for joining us. I'm Jen Winkleman. This next pocket of time is going to be dedicated to the healing art of storytelling. I've been working in the mental health field for the better part of the last two decades, and in that time, because of my work, I've had the great privilege of hearing countless stories. I hear stories that leave me at the end of the day filled with awe about the resilience of the human spirit. And I get to hear stories about those surprising moments when love steps in to save the day at the very last moment. And I hear stories about the true grit it sometimes takes to survive the human experience. I learned something about life and humanity from all of these stories, and I want to be able to share what I've learned, but because of the part that I play in my community, I'm meant to be a keeper of those narratives. It's important that I maintain privacy and confidentiality for the families that I serve. And so those stories have to stay inside the four walls of my counseling office and are held by those sacred moments where one person tells their truth and another person bears witness to it. And in this, there's some sort of magic that we co-create that leads to healing. But this has me thinking that the reach for healing could be bigger. So I decided that outside the counseling office and on a larger scale, we needed a forum for storytelling. We need to get back to the root of taking the time to listen to each other's experiences and to begin to draw from them. So today, our guest and I will have an unscripted conversation, apart from the questions that we routinely ask to get into it. And then you and I will have the opportunity to learn a bit from his or her experience. In every case, there is value and something that we can borrow for our own lives. Because behind every face, there is a story. And in every story, there are life lessons begging to be learned. So as we listen along today, it's up to us to find the lesson in the story. And then if you and I so choose, we can catch that truth like a firefly in a jar and use it as light on our own paths. Thanks again for being with us. This is All I Know. Today our guest is Eli. Hi. Eli, welcome. Thank you. Let's start with the four anchor questions that we use as our springboard for these chats. Okay. First is, who are you? What do our listeners need to know about who you are to make the most of today's conversation? Okay, so I've been thinking about this recently, actually, because um, do you know what the Enneagram is? I know that word. Okay. The Enneagram is this, like, personality test, and we have a couple friends that are, like, Enneagram junkies. <laughs> They're really into it. Yeah. And so there's been this, like, great debate between two sets of my friends on which Enneagram type I am. Oh. And I've taken the test, so I have an official type. Yeah. But I have a very close tie between the types. So the two types, one type is the helper. Yeah. And the other type is the challenger. Yeah. I could actually see both when you say that. Yeah. And so I think that I think that who I am is this mix between someone that finds identity and livelihood and meaning in supporting people, encouraging people, nurturing people, surrounding people, raising people. Uh-huh. And this other part of me that found, finds, like, identity and richness in challenging the status quo and, you know, rustling feathers around racial justice and white privilege and questions around gender and religious oppression and, you know, yada, yada, yada. So <laughs> I'm like this weird mix. Um, but I do, I do feel like 
at the core of both of those things is I am, I'm like a, hmm, what's in the right language? I'm someone who really thrives on being a part of movement. So whether that movement is nurturing someone into feeling more lovable or that movement is calling someone out on their crap, I love to be in the process with people and with myself. You know, so when people say, who are you? In my head, there's like a million little people in the audience and there's like friends from high school who would say one thing and there's friends from college who would say another thing and, you know, people that I grew up in church with who'd say a different thing and all these people who probably feel like they really know who I am because I've always been very solid in whoever I am or wherever I am. But if they all got in a room together, it would be a really great debate. Yeah, because they have different very different stages of points. Eli. Yeah, yeah, very different ideals of me. You know, and my clients. You know, I have I have clients who are convinced that I am the sappiest pushover on planet Earth, right? And then, you know, I have relationships. I have a, a whole series of people in my life who've told me, you know, you're really intimidating, right? So I have this kind of dichotomy of who I am. So the real answer to the question is, I'm not sure. <laughs> You're the first person to say that so far, and I yeah. Um, that, that really hits the challenge yeah, part of me. I like to be the one that does it differently. So validating, <laughs> yes, yes. If people are interested in checking out Enneagram, mm-hmm. did I say it right? Uh huh. How do they find that? Um, a little thing I call the Google is the only way. How I do you spell it? Okay, I'm going to spell it wrong, but if you spell it wrong, Google will help you. So okay. This will, be wor- this will work perfectly. Correct. It's like E-N-N-E-A-G-R-A-M. Some of us believe our lives are pretty ordinary, mm-hmm. and others of us feel like we live this very extraordinary life. Mm-hmm. So when we consider the spectrum between the two, mm-hmm. where are you plotting your life right now and why? No. Oh. I'm totally going to be that person with every question that doesn't answer the question and reorganizes the question. Okay. I mean, because, so on one handle, um, like there's a lot of extraordinary things that are, are, are happening in my life that I can look at that and go, it's pretty extraordinary. I mean, I sit with people every week and I get to like hear the inner workings of their heart and their relationships and their longings, their past, their trauma. I mean, that's pretty extraordinary. I agree. You know, holding this whole spectrum. Like I, I get to have a level of meaning in my work, you know, that's just off the charts. Um, I've had a lot of adventures. So like, it depends on how you define a life, right? So I lean towards defining my life as more ordinary. And I think that's in part because I love connecting with people. And I think the minute I say my life is extraordinary, I'm now disconnected in some way. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, I mean... I like that frame, though. Gives somebody something to think about. Yeah. I, I guess it's like define extraordinary, right? Right, yeah. But I, I, um, you know, I grew up in a household where my mother struggled with mental illness and my father struggled with substance abuse and my brother struggled with mental illness. And I think that's actually fairly ordinary in some ways, right? But if I were to write out some of my stories, there's a group of people that would think that my life is, you know, set and ready for publishing. Yeah. So it really depends on what you come from, how you define it. Um, You know, I grew up in suburbia. You know, so there's some ordinariness in that. Mm -hmm. But my mother grew up in Hong Kong, and so she's a third culture kid. And so, you know, that makes it a little extraordinary. And I've lived in different countries. I've lived in Korea. You know, I've traveled to more than 30 countries. 
So I've had like that piece of the puzzle, but then, you know, I mean, just like everybody else, when I post something on Facebook, I constantly check to see how many likes it got. <laughs> and I don't feel like an extraordinary person does that, right? Like that feels very the ordinary to me. doesn't care about Facebook. No. <laughs> right? That's hilarious. <laughs> Yeah. So that's my answer, my non-answer. Okay. So a third question, how do you define success? Mm. And to you, what are the markers of a successful life? Okay. So I love the way you asked that because I am very cautious to to define success on a general level Mm -hmm. for other people. Um, There's just too many human beings in the world to, you know, create one meaning. But for me, um, success is being the end to a generational line that is battered full of mental illness, trauma, and addiction. And being like this kooky grandmother who starts this whole new family tree where the kids get to be kids and the adults are the adults. And the the theme and the string is a deep sense of being securely connected to each other. That's success. So when I when I lay on my deathbed, you know, I'm thinking like 103. My hope is that I can look at the generations beneath me and see that the memo they all got was that it's about relationships and about loving each other, and that and that's that they, your legacy. Yeah, and being goofy as hell, you know, <laughs> like being playful, having fun, you know, following your heart and your desires, and living fully and being present and that would be success for me, for sure. I think I'm feeling right now like we might have taken for granted that I know you're a therapist, <laughs> but I don't know if our listeners know that. And sure. so before we jump into this next question, I thought I'd better just like lay that foundation because I feel like there's a couple of things that you said that sort of hook really easily into mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. being a therapist especially when you were talking about your work mm-hmm. and it being fulfilling. So sorry listeners that we missed that, but hopefully that gives you a little bit of context now. <laughs> so our last anchor question, what are three events, experiences mm-hmm. or themes mm-hmm. from your life mm-hmm. that you feel have most shaped your path? Mm-hmm. And then after you sort of paint those for us in broad brushstrokes, we'll choose one to talk about. Okay. Well, hmm. I find myself in the paradox of choice, not being able to choose one over the other. I would say, so three really important themes would be, um, I should have studied for this project. No. No, no, I know. I'm like, how do I synthesize this? Um, But that's part of the power of it, I think, sometimes, mm -hmm. is that the human experience is really hard to synthesize Mm -hmm. and this whole process is about Mm -hmm. distilling it down a little bit. So you having that experience Mm -hmm. while we're talking Mm -hmm. is kind of brilliant. Yeah. Well, right. I think, I also think it tells you a little bit something about me, right? Is that, you know, I tend to hold things in all of their complexity, which makes it hard to parse them out and put them into, um, you know, more categorical, examples but so I'm thinking well one theme is definitely um, the theme of taking what is broken and wounded and redeeming it so like the, if, if this could be a theme it would be like the healing process the process of you know something being made whole or returned to wholeness or made whole in the first place 
Um, and I think that's a theme just because, again, I, like I mentioned earlier, I come from such um, serious generational trauma. And so I think in my own life, in the life of um, my family members as well, you know, we haven't started with a foundation of security. We all started with a lot of insecurity and chaos. And so because that's where we our beginnings were, then the theme has to be either, you know, moving towards that which is healing and um, restorative or, you know, not digging the shithole even deeper. Right. Yeah. Um, and I've been really blessed that that for me, I feel like it's, I've, I've dug myself some fair shitholes, but they've mostly been temporary. I feel like the theme has been restoration overall. But in that, there's a theme of grieving, right? Being able to grieve what wasn't, what was, and was what, what was lost. Um, and I think that's both in my own life and just in the lives of other people I've loved, whether that's my clients or my family or my friends. Can I pull you back for one second? Mm -hmm. We've talked a little bit about generational trauma or transgenerational trauma. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people who are listening may not know what that means. Mm -hmm. So can you paint a picture for somebody in Ab lay terms? Absolutely. I'll give you kind of a general picture um, in my life. My grandfather, my maternal grandfather, um, grew up in a family where his father was an alcoholic and his mother had left her um, church of origin um, where she was cast out, lost connection to her whole family, um, and learned to basically be a very hardened woman. Okay, So when my grandfather was a child, there wasn't any warmth or connection or empathy. Okay? And the one person that he had connection to was his brother. His older brother was kind of that um, pseudo-emotional parent for him. And when... He was in junior high school. His brother went off to college and died in his sleep. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So my grandfather, who already had, you know, very little in terms of emotional, interpersonal resources, right, got a whole lot less and had a lot of trauma. And in a time period where, you know, there, there were not therapists, right? You weren't going to call your you don't talk about this. Yeah, there's nothing to do. So he developed a very, very narcissistic way of dealing with the world, which is everything is about him and his control and anyone who gets in his way, well, he's going to scare the shit out of them. How, how does swearing work in this <laughs> It's okay. okay. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, and my, my my maternal grandmother, her father was um, manic depressive. So when she was a child, was in a psych ward. At the time, they just locked people up for three years. So they were very poor. Her mother had to work at um, Woolworths, making next to nothing to support four children. One of her brothers died, and then both of her parents died by the time she was 21. Wow. So enter the scene where my very narcissistic grandfather, right, and my very wounded, stranded grandmother, who at the time didn't have the ability to make a, a good income for herself as a woman, right, um, meet and get married super quickly. Managed to have three children in under three years. Right? Wow. Okay. So my mom's the middle child. Mm -hmm. uh, my grandfather was so terrifying she didn't speak till she was three. Okay. She remembers literally, like, wetting her pants when he would come into the room because she was so afraid of him. Okay. So you see how it passed from the first generation to the second generation, okay? And so then, you know, I had a more muted version of that trauma, but, you know, when I was a child, I would find my mom in closets, crying, so depressed she couldn't function, suicidal. I, I knew how to call the suicide hotline when I was in fifth grade. 
and talk with them about her wanting to kill herself and you know and she had just internalized this deep sense of being unlovable and unworthy as well as having inherited probably some genetic predisposition right, right? Mm-hmm. but so that it's 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 like this the way that the wounds get passed down through parenting through what a parent is or isn't able to do for a kid and then what that asks of that child in terms of their survival and then how that then gets transmuted to the next generation so one of the themes for you mm-hmm. is definitely this transgenerational trauma yeah, piece and totally. the impact for you. Totally. And you highlighted a second ago that a branch of that, and I don't know if this is the second piece or if this uh-huh. is still a, connected to the first piece, sure. but a branch of that really is grief yeah. and sadness over Absolutely. what could have been, maybe what should have been, uh-huh. what didn't happen, what uh-huh. we didn't get, what we didn't experience, and yeah. how we come back from that. Totally. Sure, we can call it one or two branches. Okay. We'll see what else is there. Okay. I'm trying to think of other things. I think, you know, I hate sounding trite, but I the truth in the triteness is that the other two things that I would really say are, and I'm going to go to events, is that, you know, marrying my husband, you know, who is the kindest person on planet Earth, and he can be a real pain in my butt, too, of course, but not at his core. I mean, at his core, he is a kind, consistent, secure person. So I think, you know, learning from him and experiencing what it feels like to feel like, oh, I have this, like, person who has my back. Like, I think that was, that's been, that's affected me greatly. It's given me a foundation I don't think I, that has definitely influenced where I've gone and who I've become. And then I think becoming a mother was my little cute little buddy and that one you know has its own themes but like I think about the fact that like you know now when I turn on the news and there's a story about you know a child being hurt or something I I can't even handle it yeah I'm like channel change change the channel I can't handle it right now I know there are is you know this is reality but I uh, you know uh the the inherent vulnerability that comes with being a parent it changes you yeah, I cannot remember who said it. It's probably someone famous, and our listeners will be like, come on, I can't believe you didn't make the connection. But it makes me think of that uh, quote that has to do with, like, when you become a parent, you start to learn that your heart actually walks around outside your body most of the time. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and it's probably said way more eloquently than no, I, I just that works, did. But I think it works. That, that is exactly what it feels like. Yeah, and at any given point in time, you know, I, I I joke, but I actually mean it. You know, I say to people, like, if, if any of my children, I only have one right now, but if any of my children ever die, you will literally have to lock me up. Like, I, I cannot imagine how... Enduring that. No. How do, you, how do you recover from that? Because they are literally a part of you, just like you said. Yeah. Okay, so becoming a mother. Mm-hmm. Your husband and the influence that he's had mm-hmm. as your partner. Okay, I feel like I need to add things. See, I'm so bad. I can never just follow the rules. You can add things. You're allowed. Well, I what do you want to add? All of the women that I journeyed with in my, you know, early adulthood when we were all just, you know, full of heartache and in and out of relationships and breakups and unsure about who we were and in therapy ourselves and, you know, who who I think just validated my voice and my experience and made me feel seen. I never had friendships like that as a kid. I had a lot of playmates, but I didn't have real friends as a kid. And I think that's in part because I was surviving a lot of trauma. Mm-hmm. I was, 
not drawn to people that would have opened that up. I was drawn to people that kind of would help me just get through it. Mm-hmm. Or maybe be a distraction. Totally. Totally. Or were around. I don't even know. I'm yeah. not sure how all those choices happened. But I certainly didn't experience real friendship until college in my 20s. And I'd say those women raised me in huge ways. Okay, I'm going to cheat again. Okay, one more. Or two. <laughs> Twelve. <laughs> or Twelve. we got to pick one to talk about at some point. <laughs> okay. All right. I'll give you a few more, and then you can pick. Okay. So when so this is another turning point. So I mentioned that, you know, my mother struggled with some serious depression. But when I was, it was either seven or eight, I'm not sure, she checked herself into a hospital. Mm. And got diagnosed as bipolar 2, got on medications, and, um, you know, I mean, she still has struggled really until even now, but but stabilized in a huge way. So that was a huge moment of shift in my life, I think, as well, is that I witnessed someone saying, I'm not okay, and it's okay to ask for help. And it can get better. Yeah. She needs to write a book. But anyway, that would be another turning point for sure. Which one do you want to talk about? I don't know. (laughs) I want to talk about the thing that you have found yourself the most interested to talk about based on what I've said. That's interesting that you're, like, turning it back to me. So I think probably then I would go back to the transgenerational piece because I think that a lot of what you have talked about Mm -hmm. actually folds into that. Mm -hmm. It's almost like... Yeah, they're all... That's Yeah. Like, then I get it all. Yeah. Okay, I'm in. Okay. So you told us a little bit about um, your grandparents. Uh-huh. On my mom's side. And how that impacted her. Mm-hmm. What other pieces of the story or family members do we need to know or understand to kind of delve into the idea of transgenerational trauma and how it impacts it someone? Okay. Well, so we should probably talk about my dad. So on my dad's side, and, you know, we're only going, you know, one, two generations in this, but so there's there's way more story beyond that. But what often happens in transgenerational trauma is the stories aren't written down because it is not a fun thing to write about your addiction or your mental illness or your struggle or your affair or whatever. And so people don't tend to have those stories. So a yeah, lot sometimes of, that history is lost when the person yes. it's lost. It's lost in its narrative form, but it's still transmuted and felt yeah. in its emotional form. But so on my dad's side, there's there's a little bit of lost story. My dad's father, um, and some of this is going to sound made up. I promise you, it is not made up. But so my dad's father's name is Jim Failure. Oh my! I kid you not. And he was his. He was born in 1919, and his mother was 16 years old. Oh my! And and it was um, back then. I mean. You know, it's funny. You don't hear people use this phrase very often, but um, you know, now I I wonder if the younger generation even knows what the word bastard means. You know, I think they probably just think that means idiot or jerk, right? Or, you know, right? Meanhead, whatever, right? Right? But it literally means uh, an illegitimate child, uh-huh. right? And so he grew up in an era where literally his schoolmates called him a bastard. And he was born. And meant it in the true sense of that word. Yeah. So he was raised by his grandparents, rural farmers in Iowa who, you know, had next to no money and were raising this child. And their name train. is Failure. Yeah. It's spelled differently. F-A-I-L-Y-E-R. Okay. But so he grows up in this environment where, you know, he is bullied and he's teased and there's, um, you know, all of this cruelty, alcohol, alcoholism in his family. Um, so rough life. So both both of my you know grandfathers come from 
you know, rough stuff, right? And so he goes into the military because that's really his option, you know, and he meets my grandmother when he's on leave somewhere and, you know, essentially convinces her to marry him after like three days of knowing each other, right? So again, maybe not the best setup for a healthy marriage in life. Um, my grandmother grew up in Nebraska and she, her story is less um, trauma and childhood and more trauma vicariously through marrying someone who has so much trauma mm-hmm. um, and ultimately entering an abusive marriage. She was the smartest kid in the state of Nebraska at the time. She had the highest grades in the state of Nebraska, um, but girls weren't allowed to go to college. And so there was no future. So her future was to get married. So he convinces her to marry him. She does. And he he continues to be one of the most uh, complex figures in my childhood because simultaneously for me as a child, he was very loving and affectionate and kind. Um, but he was also wound so tight and so controlling. And, you know, um, she actually left him when my dad was a freshman in college and he convinced her to remarry him again. Wow. I know. They actually got divorced and then remarried. But, you know, he was he was cantankerous. It doesn't even begin to describe the kind of, you know, the environment. And in raising, you know, his boys, yeah, you know, everything was about control. So, and no. So this is your dad and your uncles. Mm-hmm. Yep, my dad and my uncles. And I also should mention that both my dad and my mom experienced childhood sexual abuse. And no one caught it, no one picked up on it, no one was aware of it, right? So all of that got transmuted down, obviously, into my dad having a severe addiction. So my mom, my mom tells the story that, you know, essentially, before I was born, my dad had a coke addiction. And so he figured out, you know, how to get clean and sober off of that and quit smoking and all of that. But then it just all moved to alcohol, you know, and he's tried to quit over the years and yeah but so as a child you know I was in a home where my dad was essentially anesthetized you know he self-medicating was, yes you know I, I you know he'll he'll talk about remembering my childhood but it's very vague you know I'm like really that's interesting I don't have that same memory of that but um because he was you know drunk a lot right? and my my mother was she says looking for love in all the wrong places and they were nine years of age and difference. So by the time that my mother and my father met in a bar, right, in a context where, you know, alcohol is flowing freely, my mom was desperate on her second marriage and desperate to find someone to love her, someone to have kids with, somewhere to belong. And she says she essentially convinced him to marry her, right? And he was 35 at the time and felt ashamed that he wasn't married. Most of his friends were married and... The childhood love of his life, I kid you not, her name was Marcy Mary, Wow, had rejected him, and he had never really recovered. And so, you know, she came along and kind of pushed the boat forward. And Your mom came along. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, then they got married. But so the context, like all of these choices are made out of fear or desperation, right? Like they're, they're not choices that are free to be made out of desire, right? They're trickled with that, like, long-term trauma effect, right? that makes someone feel unworthy and therefore disconnect from themselves and make those decisions. So, you know, as a kid, I was, I mean, I joke when people say, how long have you practiced? Have you been practicing? I'm 35 right now. And I say, oh, about 33 and a half years. (laughs) Because truly I was born into an environment where there was such a need for someone to be a stabilizer. And I figured out how to be that in order to create what I needed, which was a more stable environment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So interesting for me, like, I feel like my genuine experience right now, Mm -hmm. oh my gosh, like, I didn't know this about you. Yeah. You know, and because we've been in each other's orbits for a while, I feel like, I feel like I should, I'm having this dissonant experience of, oh, this is an interview as if Uh we know each other for the first time, but we don't. It like sits in my gut, like, so what do you do with that? Yeah, it surprises you. Yeah. Yeah, and I I think I think that is we can pivot back to that first question. I think that is part of the dilemma that people have in defining who I am. You know, my dad and I had this huge falling out when I was going through therapy in my 20s because I was trying to reflect back to him, "Hey, this was what it was like being a kid." You know, you, mom was losing her mind and this you is how were, you impacted me. And you were MIA. You know, you were out drinking with your buddies at this place called Piccolo's, right? You were out at Piccolo's having a good time and we were left to fend for ourselves and try and help mom stabilize herself, right? And he said to me, and he and he didn't just say it to me. It was like this deep belief he had. He said, "No. You were born an adult." Oh my. Yeah. And and at the time, I mean, I was like you know, furious. Like how could you think that? And there's no I was 2, I was 3, I was 4. You know, I mean, I have I have memories of my mom being so upset that she got aggressive and my dad using me as a shield. I mean, I have like, you know, these memories of like and I'm going, how could you possibly think as an adult? And at the time when he said that to me, It was actually a really healthy move for me that I spent a year just not talking to him and just kind of working through my story without that distraction. However, as the years have gone on and I've gotten more and more time to just reflect on who I am, I think there's a piece of that that is innate in me. There is something in me that is just mine, that I do have this solidness. And 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 it kind of sucks to be that solid. And at the same time, it's probably exactly what helped you survive. Yeah, it's both. that time. It's both. Right? Yes. And there are people in my life who know those other parts of me. I mean, I have, you know, curled up in a ball and cried like I was, you know, an infant with multiple friends and certainly with my husband and with therapists. And so, like, there are these parts of me that I had to heal. They were there. Um, it's just that, you know, most people don't see them. And now they're not. There are vulnerable parts of me, but I I wouldn't say that I have those really traumatized, wounded little parts anymore. I just, every once in a while, I'll get a tiny little knock on the door and I'll be like, oh, I remember that feeling, but it's not like it was, Yeah. you know, years ago, a decade ago. But maybe that's the picture of healing. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Like, because I think a lot of people Mm -hmm. think of healing as like being the walking wounded. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Sure. The wounds are still there, but you're 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 still going, mm-hmm. and that is healing. Yeah, but really, you change. Mm-hmm. Like if you really heal, you actually change a little bit. Yeah, and I so I think I was always a performer. So in that solidness, I had the ability to look like I was okay when I wasn't. Um, I think I was really convincing. So to my dad's credit, I think I did look like a little adult. And I think I, I was sharp and I saw things and I spoke things and I responded to things that were very convincing that I wasn't on the inside deeply terrified and upset and scared and whatever. Mm-hmm. So I think there's some of that. Whereas now I really, I just feel pretty sturdy. So, and the, and the dilemma is, you know, when you're really sturdy, people don't often wonder about the places where you might have experienced pain or vulnerability. Right? They just don't see that. Um, 
And so sometimes people miss out on the opportunity to connect with you on that level. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm not. Su- I'm not surprised. You're surprised. <laughs> yeah, that's not new feedback for me. Yeah. Like I think when people aren't in my like really really close orbit where they've had to walk through the really deep stuff with me, they tend to think, "Your dad, she probably had a fairly easy life," and you know, yeah, yeah. The, the judgments we make. Yeah. Well, and I'm like I've always been a girly girl. I like makeup. I like to do my hair. I like to get dressed up. So I think that also creates a sort of facade of like you know, I got this. Um. Yeah. But anyway. So do you feel like you've got it? Oh, I feel like I've learned how to not have to have it. I I feel like I have such an um, amazing support network that when things are even a little bit hard, I let it out and I lean in and I speak the thing. And um, so in that sense, yeah, I do feel like I've got it, but not because I've got it, but because all of these people have me kind of thing. That's a really like powerful thing to say. I wonder how many people, oh. you know, I mean, yeah. I'm just, as soon as you said that, I just thought, wow, is that a common human experience? Yeah. So maybe that's extraordinary. I, I, I think it might be. Yeah. Sometimes I don't want to believe that because it makes me so sad, you know, that there could be so many people that don't have that. I think I am good at drawing people close to me. I think, I don't know if we want to call it a survival skill or what, but I think there was, there's something in me, whether innate or learned, that I have been good at creating a group of people that have my back. By having their back is really what I do. Well, but that's what I was just sort of thinking is that a a lot of people, particularly people in our field, Mm -hmm. are very good caretakers Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and are able to draw people very, very close as long as. Yeah, there's they're sort of in that position of being the one who mm, is the caretaker and the one who pours in. Yeah, totally. And I what I'm admiring about what you're saying is that actually it's a bit of a twist, because when you said I'm very good at drawing people close to me, I wasn't seeing you as the pourer. Mm-hmm. I was seeing you as the vessel. Yeah, yeah, totally. Being and poured in, too. Yeah. And um, I think there's something special about that. Mm. That's all awesome. that you can do that. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be, I, I don't know, I would be, I don't know where I would be if I didn't have that skill. But that goes back to referencing, you know, all the women in my 20s and, you know, my husband and, um, you know, dear friends. and Yeah. So how do you get to a place, I don't know if any of our listeners are thinking of this, but this is what popped up for me. How do you get to a place where... Um, you pretty much come from this war zone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as you're emerging into your adulthood, things sort of, I mean, the earth starts to shift in ways that are actually very good mm-hmm. and very healthy. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't happen like overnight or mm-hmm. just by, you know, one choice. Yeah. So can you fill that gap for us a little bit? Because there, it's almost like there's sure. these two very different faces. Totally. For yeah. Eli, Eli's life, and it's almost like we're missing this set of chapters yeah. in between. Well, I think, um, I think that in my youth, um, I really looked for refuge in relationships with boys and men. And so I I kind of had a lot of different relationships, and I I kept trying to 
to find someone that would make me feel like I was stable and was, that, that it was at home, right? And in that, it kept not working. I, and I think what would happen is kind of what you're talking about, this dissonance, is that, you know, boys and young men would be drawn to me out of this kind of strength that I exude. And then as we started to attach, I would let them see these parts of me that were you know, traumatized. I think they would go, holy, yeah, like that, no, that is not what I signed up for. Like, what is this? And they were young. They had no clue. Like, you know, they, they hadn't figured out yet how do you hold somebody's heart or even the sacredness of that. You know, they hadn't learned that yet. Um, some of them may not have learned it even now. I'm not right, sure. right, 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 right. Um, <clears throat> but so I think that the amount of pain I felt when those relationships ended was unbearable to me. I felt devastated. And that devastation led me to seek counseling. And, and okay, so I mentioned my mom going in to um, get psychiatric care and getting guys She also then proceeded to go on and get her master's in counseling. Oh, wow. So I guess I should finish that piece of the story. Um, at the time I was in junior high school, it was super annoying. You know, I would be like, I don't want to go to school. And she'd be like, that's how you feel. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> mother, really, please. I just don't want to go to school. Whatever the thing was. Um, but I think she did really, like, create a narrative for us that there are people that are out there that are helpers, and their whole job is to help you work through your emotional pain. So that was very accessible to me, whereas I don't think that's accessible to everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I mean, I did, like, 10 years of therapy with different therapists, you know, crying about all my different breakups and feeling lost in the world and relationships that felt broken and processing my childhood and you know I mean there was a point where I was processing material from being young um, and I cried so hard that I vomited in my therapist's trash can yeah so I mean it, there was a journey of, and that's why I said, mentioned the grief piece of grieving of having to let myself feel the feelings that were in my body and release them in the context of, you know, a safe person who could hear them and hold them and help me make sense of them. And, you know, I mean, I still remember, you know, moments in that process where, you know, I would be telling a story and I would look at my therapist's face and there would be like horror on the therapist's face. And I would be like, oh, is this a bad story? (laughs) And they'd be like, yeah, yeah it's a bad that's the best story. <laughs> and it was so helpful for me to then deepen my relationship with the grief and let my, let that part feel all that was actually probably experienced when I was, you know, going through it. Um, but you'd put a nice little shell around it. Yeah, I put a shell. I mean, you know, in high school, I instinctively was, probably not even on purpose. No, no, I feel like that was all instinct. You know, I was, you know, captain of this on that team, student body president. Like I, you know, I I, I had. I survived through achieving. And I think that also gave me a foundation of feeling worthy on some level. It was also a trap, right? Because if you feel worthy from what you do, then you always wonder what people will think about you if all that's stripped away and, you know, you're just left with whatever totally underneath that. So that was a trap and something I had to really, I really had to work through that piece of the puzzle. Yeah, and then when I met my husband... I actually, I met him, and we dated for a little while, and then I was going off to grad school, and he didn't know what he was doing with his life, and he said, hey, I just want to make sure we're on the same page, and we're really taking this slow, and I said, oh, (laughs) I'm so bad at slow. We should actually just be friends so that this doesn't get weird, because I won't, I will make this weird if, if we need to go slow, and he was like, okay, 
let's be friends. And then I went away for two years and he ended up back where I was. And, um, you know, he has his own story, but we were so drawn to each other. We started this relationship again, but both of our insecure backgrounds made it hard to know how the heck to build a healthy relationship. We didn't have a clue. And so we were doing our best, but kind of chasing each other around the same tree. And eventually I said, uh, I feel like we've either got to shit or get off the pot. And I feel like if we're going to shit, we're going to go to therapy. And so we went to a couple of therapy for like a year and a half. And that was really pivotal for both of us. Do you think, I always love asking this question of therapists. Do you think that therapy is the only way? No. I think that actually the main way is growing up in a family of origin where there are adults. <laughs> That's the main way. Yeah. You have a secure experience. But if there aren't. So if there so aren't. So that was your path, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, and, and, the, yeah. and this worked really well for you. But let's say there's someone listening who has similarities. So what is therapy? A therapy is a relationship. So I do believe the only healing is in relationship. Mm -hmm. I believe that deeply. Because we are relational creatures, and that which is wounded in relationship has to be repaired in relationship. Mm -hmm. So... Do you have to go and see a therapist as the only avenue? No. But do you need to have witnesses to your story? Yes. Yes. Do you need to grieve? Yes. yes. Like, do you need to have a... I'm like the peanut gallery over here. I like it. Yes. I like it. It's actually making me feel really validated. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that therapy in our culture and our context is one of the most effective ways if, 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 if you are matched with the right therapist, right? So Yeah, that's a big if. It's a big if. Yeah. You know, no offense to our field, but there's a lot of nut job therapists out there. Yeah. You know, and so you, you have to really be with someone that isn't power hungry or isn't, you know, disconnected to their own story, you know, a real healer. And so I think that can happen in other contexts. You know, I think teachers can be healers. I think pastors can be healers. I think... I think any role can be a healing role or an oppressive role, depending on what someone does with it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, do you need to go to therapy? No. Is that going to be a great avenue if you have the, the kind of generational stuff I'm talking about? Yeah, probably. If you're the right person. Yep, if you're the right person. Yeah. Mm -hmm. At the very beginning of our conversation, I think when you were asking the question or when you were answering the question about um, who you are, uh -huh. you talked about movement and change uh -huh. and, and growth. Uh -huh. And I imagine I'm not the only person uh -huh. who listens to you talk and thinks she's arrived. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. So when you're a person who's arrived. Where do you go next? Well, okay, so I will I will say to you, on one level, there's been an arrival, but it's a non-arrival arrival, right? So we're going to get very meta here. I, I don't feel like I've arrived in the sense that I'm in nirvana, you know? I mean, I can tell you about experience two weeks ago where I'm traveling with my toddler, and he's slapping me over the face, screaming candy at the top of his lungs <laughs> in the airport, and I'm carrying a car seat and two bags, and I'm... You know, telling him, like, say, stop it. Not now. Mommy's carrying things, right? And I'm totally losing my nuts, and then I can't find something. I drop the car seat, and I go, fuck. And my toddler goes, fuck. <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, I mean, so, like, to That's be, what arrival looks like. Arrival of the non-arrived. Yeah, I think, I, think it's, I think it's about 
the experience of having grace for yourself and like you know there was such an expectation in my life for so long to arrive I think that was what that perfectionism and that drive and that survival drive said you need to get there you need to get there you need to get there and I think for me arriving is no longer having to arrive you know it's it's knowing that I'm imperfect knowing that right now there could be a client from my past going oh yeah she was my therapist and she sucked right and there could be, you know, people who have known me in other places and been like, oh, yeah, I really loved her. She was amazing. Like, I no longer feel the pressure to be everything to everyone everywhere. I feel like I just get to do my little plot and figure it out. So I told you this story earlier, but I feel like I should tell it again about the hummingbird. Oh, yeah, please. That was off air. But, yeah, go ahead. So the little hummingbird is this story that's cross cultures. It's, you know, um revered in some native cultures in South America and Africa, adapted in different. So I'm going to tell you my version of it, which is essentially this. So in the forest, there was a great fire and um, the fire was all consuming. It was an absolute total disaster. And all of the animals had to flee the forest to save their lives. And on the edge of the forest, they're having this conversation and the frog is saying, um, I'm terrified. I'm so afraid. I don't know what to do. And the moose is saying, this fire is too big. There's nothing we can do. And there's, you know, a bear and the bear is saying, I, I think that this is my fault. I think I started the fire. I'm, I deserve to die. I don't know, whatever. Okay. And then they pay attention. They notice there's this little hummingbird and the little hummingbird is going back and forth between the river and the forest and picking up one drop of water as much water as that little beak can hold and flying it over and dropping it on the forest and you know the squirrel says to the hummingbird what are you doing and they all look at the hummingbird with disbelief and the hummingbird says back to them I'm doing what I can and I find such refuge in that and I think for years and years I felt like it was my job to fix everyone and everything and it destabilized me because it was too much and I think the stage I'm at, again, I don't know that I ever want to say I'm arrived because, man, there's a whole lot I don't know. But that I feel permission to be wherever I am in the journey feels really nice. You know, and you're talking to me in a particular moment in time as well. You know, I mean, there are, if you talked to me in a season four years ago, I was going through something, you know, that would be a, maybe a different conversation, right? right. So I happen to feel that way currently, but who knows? And I'm not afraid of the wheels coming off. I don't, I guess I just don't, def I guess I feel like we're all just doing the best we can. Yeah. And that's all there is to it. And sometimes I overextend myself and sometimes I'm in balance and, you know, you just notice and then do, you grab that drop of water and you drop it on the fire, whatever it is, the thing that you can do. So this might be a little bit of an awkward transition because I feel like organically we kind of got to this place maybe already. Okay. But if we're looking at this history, this imprint of transgenerational trauma yep. and the way that it's impacted you and all that you learned from mm -hmm. where you went mm -hmm. with those experiences uh -huh. and the relationships that it took you to yep. and that you built and helped you heal yep. and the occupation that it took you to right. and how that fulfills all these things. If we were bringing that all back together and you are going to try to boil it down for our listeners. Mm -hmm. After all this, mm -hmm. all I know is, I mean, it, 
think it's all about relationships and people and being connected and being vulnerable in those relationships and being with people who support you and cheer you on. Um, I guess another thing to add in tandem, or do you want to end on this piece? It's okay. You're okay. So the other thing I would add in tandem to that, when you were asking about like my progress and how did I get there, I had a tendency. Um, so people who felt really unstable in different seasons of their lives, who happened to be connected to me, would be really drawn to me and want me to sort of give them a piece of what I had. I think that was sort of the experience. They were drawn into whatever this is in me, and they wanted me to give it to them. Mm-hmm. And so that led to me being in a lot of toxic relationships. Friendships, I even had a dating relationship that was really abusive. And I had a really hard time not being what other people wanted me to be for them or separating. So when you talk about that step and that process, I think one of the main healing pieces for me was also disappointing a lot of people is that I got to a place where I could say, I'm sorry, I just can't be what you want me to be. And people, you know, I mean, I had I had a couple of friends who, like, now I look at them, I'm like, oh, wow, they were really unstable, you know, leaving me, like, 30, 40 voicemails, like, you can't leave me, you can't do this, I can't believe, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and I had to sort of, like, sit with that gauntlet and go, I have to leave you, <laughs> because if I don't, I, I'm not choosing myself. So all I know is relationships are everything, and in that specifically relationships where you experience being seen for all of who you are, the bigness of who you are, the smallness of who you are, you know, messiness of who you are, the capability of who you are, like relationships where you get to be authentically connected. That's the everything, right? It's not just relationships, right? So you can have really toxic relationships, but that kind of healthy connected space. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Thank you. Yeah, it's so fun to do this. So we're going to finish today the way that we always finish. Okay. Being a fellow thespian, you're probably aware of um, Inside the Actor's Studio uh-huh. with James Lipton. Uh-huh. So you know how he wraps the show every time with the questionnaire by Bernard Pivot? Uh, I don't know that, but I'm ready. Well, okay. that's where we're headed. Okay. So Eli, what's your favorite word? <sighs> Connection. What's your least favorite word? Okay, so the long answer to that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, In recent years, Mm -hmm. I had this like aha awakening moment where I realized the majority of negative swear words that we use are about the female anatomy. Oh. Okay, I'm not going to list them for you. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, the majority of them are about the female anatomy. And... So I've come to, I kind of made this ethical choice that any swear word I use will be gender neutral. <laughs> so anyway, but so in that, the I would say any, my, my least favorite word is any word that denigrates based on gender. Like, you know, I mean, obviously I hate any kind of racial word or anything right, right. like that. But that, I think, you know, when people use the P word or the C word or... Um, it just shows you how inherent sexism is in our culture. And so I think I hate those words. Yeah, it makes sense. I feel really awkward about asking you your favorite curse word. And that's coming. Okay. Okay. Uh, what turns you on creatively, spiritually, emotionally? <sighs> People's stories. Totally. I'm a story junkie. So as, mu- as much as I can hear about people's lives, 
and what they've lived and where they've gone and what they're doing. Yeah. It turns you off. Okay, so you know how there's this theory that you like least in other people yeah. the thing you like least in yourself? Yeah. I feel like this is one of those things where it's like, this is actually something about myself I don't like that I don't like in other people potentially. But I hate when people are just really know-it-alls. I have a bit of a know-it-all streak. So I don't experience you that way. That's so good. Interview my brother, my younger brother. He will tell you there there was a, you know, if you ever watched Peanuts, like there was a Lucy stage <laughs> for sure. Oh, my. But anyway, yeah, I think when people are real know-it-alls and they are dominance-oriented and how they relate, um, whether that's in context of race or gender or, you know, power like someone has a teaching position or whatever anytime I feel like someone is really dominating other people and in that kind of I am the authority I am the truth on all of this that that's like ooh, that brings up that challenger in me and I'm ready to go fisticuffs not liking it no favorite curse word well I have a two-year-old so I'm really trying to stop cursing Mm -hmm. I've said shit several times in this show so based (laughs) on data it's probably that but I've been teaching my two-year-old to say shoot. And so right now, shoot is my favorite curse word because when he says it, and then so he goes, oh, mama, shoot, <laughs> shoot. And it's just so cute. So right now, that's my favorite curse word. Awesome. What sound or noise do you love? I mean, I'm sure this is like an average answer, so it'll put me back on the ordinary range. But I just think of music. I love music. So, you know, and in particular, like strong female vocals. What sound or noise do you hate? I mean, the sound of violence. In whatever sound that it happens to bear, whether it's a voice or silence mm-hmm. or, you know, literally a gunshot or I think the sound of any kind of violence. What profession other than your own mm-hmm. would you most like to attempt? Well, so I have two backup plans. So whenever the day comes that I am just done doing the work I do, or I'm forced out of it for some reason. I either want to open a bakery. Yes. I just made the best coconut pound cake this week and I've eaten like half of it. <laughs> I need to take it off the counter and put it somewhere where it's not in visual range. Or I would do some kind of fashion buying somehow. But so you see, both of these are totally disconnected, <laughs> you know, uh, from, yeah. from the realm of having to hold heartache, right? So my career right now is about holding heartache and ushering beauty into people's lives. These alternate careers are, I mean, you could argue, I guess I'd have to make sure that all my clothing was, you know, I think ethical. you'd probably find a way to spin it. Sure. Yeah. But anyway, but they, but they would be, there would be a simplicity to it of like, I'm just making delicious things. And if they get burned, they get thrown away. And it's that simple, right? As opposed to the complexity of entering into the realm of people's lives and relationships and those would be my two. What profession would you definitely not like to do? I would never, ever, ever want to be a meter maid. Oh, yeah. Right? I like to be liked way too much. <laughs> Being the meter maid would just be no. terrible. Yes. Oh, my gosh. But I think people who choose to be meter maids really love being meter maids. Don't you think? I think they like rules. Yeah. And they like busting people. And they don't mind. No. Yeah, and I would just, I, first of all, I would never give out any tickets. 
I would write people notes. So I'd get fired very quickly. And if I did have to give a ticket, I mean, I would lay in bed all night and be like, feeling bad. Oh, that person doesn't know that I'm actually, like, really laid back. But I'm, I'm nice. I'm not I'm not mean. Cool. Totally. <laughs> if heaven exists, uh-huh. what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? What's interesting about this question is it's something I thought about a lot in my childhood. Um, I would describe myself as being a recovering fundamentalist. So I think through childhood I really clung to dogma and legalism and thought a lot about the pearly gates. Mm -hmm. And in adulthood I, I felt at some point on a spiritual level I just heard the voice of kind of just saying, like, we're good. Just relax. We're good. So, I mean... I don't know, probably the same thing I say to my clients when they come in, something along the lines of like, hi, it's so good to see you. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> Thank you, Eli. Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you found the conversation with Eli useful and that it's going to inspire you to apply those ideas around finding your tribe and finding ways to connect, kind of pushing past whatever it is in your own life so that you can make those authentic connections with people that have your back to help you heal. Totally. As always, we thank you so much for listening in. One of the most important things for our speakers and guests when they agree to be vulnerable with us about their life experience is to know that what they have to say is going to fall on ready ears, and we couldn't do that without you. Please remember that all of the opinions, ideas, information, and views shared as part of today's conversation belong solely to each speaker. And while we hope our listeners find each episode helpful and interesting, please note that this podcast doesn't serve as therapeutic intervention, nor should it substitute as advice or direction from a mental health professional. All I Know is a production of Inward Bound, a private psychotherapy practice based in Denver, Colorado. We specialize in working with adoptive families and provide support and training associated with attachment and the impact of early trauma on childhood development. If you or someone you love is struggling with adoption-related or relational challenges, find us on the World Wide Web. This podcast is produced by Jessica Barry Edelstein and me with audio engineering by Craig Knapp. If you'd like to be a guest on All I Know, please reach out to Jess. You can contact her at jess.alliknow at inwardboundco.com. One more time, it's Jess, J-E-S-S, dot all I know at inwardboundco.com. We hope you'll join us for the next installment of All I Know. We release a new episode every week. And in the meantime, this is Jen, for all of us here at the show, reminding you, catch all the light you can. <laughs>